Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to examine pump and dump schemes in which thinly traded penny stocks are held by unscrupulous broker-dealers through nominees who push the stock on unsophisticated investors, drive up the share prices, and then sell their shares at inflated prices, causing the stock value to drop significantly. The term pump and dump is not widely known outside of securities enforcement, but the names of the practitioners are more familiar. Stratton, Oakmont's Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street fame, Benjamin Conde, Power Traders Press, Rooney Pace, A.R. Barron, and the granddaddy of them all, Bob Brennan of First Jersey Securities, introduced the world to stock boiler rooms, which have continued to be a blight on the securities industry ever since. Joining me today is Gibson Dunn litigation partner and former Wolf of Wall Street prosecutor, Joel Cohen, who Forbes magazine nicknamed the Wolfhound of Wall Street for his successful prosecution of Jordan Belfort. He's a trial lawyer, former federal prosecutor, co-chair of Gibson Dunn's White Collar Defense and Investigations Group, and a member of its securities litigation, class actions, and antitrust practice groups. Mr. Cohen's experience includes all aspects of FCPA anti-corruption issues, insider trading, cross-border tax issues, securities and financial institution litigation, class actions, sanctions, money laundering and asset recovery, with a particular focus on international disputes and discovery. He's here today to explain pump and dump schemes, what they are, how they work, and ways to avoid becoming a victim. Welcome, Joel, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, glad to have you, Joel. So many of our listeners have read about stock boiler rooms and maybe seen them depicted in movies and on TV shows like Boiler Room, The Sopranos, and of course, The Wolf of Wall Street. Can you explain what pink sheet stocks are? They're sometimes referred to as penny stocks or microcap stocks, and why they're so attractive to unscrupulous broker-dealers being operated as boiler rooms. I'm happy to. So pink sheets, it's actually kind of an anachronistic description. The microcap and small-cap stock markets are markets that trade in the public securities of companies that trade typically under $5 per share or under $2 per share. It depends on which, which exchange you're talking about. Back in the old days, sad to say that I'm old enough to remember this now, they used to literally print out the trading tickets on pink pieces of paper. And so they were called the pink sheet to distinguish them from, let's say, you know, a larger company like a General Electric or a Pepsi or some other company that's trading a different kind of exchange, such as the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. That's where the name comes from. And in terms of uh, why are they so attractive to unscrupulous broker dealers who might be operating unscrupulously in the securities markets, that has not changed over time, even though the color of the sheets has changed. So a lot of new companies you know, are basically built on one idea, the so-called monoline businesses. They have you know one product, one idea that they think is going to break through. And we should recognize that the vast majority of companies traded on microcap or small caps um, exchanges are perfectly legitimate companies. They may not be good investments, but they're perfectly legitimate investments. But there are some that are not. And the reason why unscrupulous broker-dealers and, and other manipulators preying on these marketplaces is because those flashy ideas are a nice introduction 
for, especially for relatively unsophisticated investors who think that they can make a quick buck to be attracted to these kind of, you know, single idea companies that they think that that's the way that money is made quickly. And it fits in well to a narrative a manipulator wants to sell to people when they're trying to get them to buy the stock. It's easier. The other reason why they like it is because the stocks trade at low prices, often literally pennies to the share or low dollars to the share. They can manipulate the stock's prices more easily because a movement of just a few pennies can make a huge difference in the trading price of the stock and the way in which these unscrupulous investors or unscrupulous broker-dealers can try to take advantage of the marketplace. Also, they trade more thinly. What thin trading means is that there's fewer people buying and selling the shares of these unknown companies that have only recently gone public and had very few investors. And so once again, they're easier to manipulate than when you have, let's say, you know, 20 million shares of a stock exchanging hands on a given day where it takes a lot more effort and it's very difficult to manipulate. So that, that's the reason why. Well, no, that makes sense. And we appreciate you explaining that. So pump and dump schemes entail insiders from the stock boiler room getting people to act as nominees to acquire large amounts of thinly traded stock on their behalf. How does that work? And what's the impact on the value of a thinly traded stock when large tranches of shares are purchased? By the way, this also still exists. It doesn't exist in the necessarily, as we'll probably discuss, in the way that we saw you know, years ago when there's literally boiler rooms, people on telephones, but it happens over the internet now. But the dynamic in the marketplace is exactly the same, Scott, which is that when they're thinly traded stocks, what the unscrupulous broker dealers will do is they will appoint nominees, which are basically people that they're close to, their friends, their family, others who they control, and ask them to control the shares of the company. Or some, let's say you know 20% of the overall shares of the company in names where an outside investor would not easily be able to figure out that they have some kind of relationship to the broker dealer who's actually trying to get other investors to buy the stock. And what they do is they're able to manipulate when those investors sell their shares. So drive up the price of the stock by trying to get relatively unsophisticated investors to buy the stock in a short period of time. Once again, if it's trading in the pennies or a dollar or two per share, those additional purchases can move the price of the stock up very quickly. And then their nominees, unbeknownst to anyone else, will sell their shares into that marketplace at that high price before the price drops. You know, the way markets work is, you know, prices go up when there's more buyers than sellers and prices go down when there's more sellers than buyers. But there's a period of time before the market can respond to that. And those nominees that are controlled by the unscrupulous broker dealers will sell the shares that they have been holding anonymously before the price drops. And then what happens is all the rest of the investors are stuck holding the bag as the price drops down to often to zero. And the broker dealers are secretly obtaining the value of what the nominees that they control sold at a higher price without anyone knowing what happened. So sometimes boiler room operations underwrite initial public offerings, and then they push the sale of the stock of the newly listed companies as part of a pump and dump scheme. Is there an added benefit to the conspirators when they inflate the value of a newly listed company's hold stock through the flippers, you know, nominees who give the stock back to the underwriters? There is. And look, the way the securities markets work is when a company decides to go public, if it's a meaningfully sized company that has legitimate opportunity for growth, what's really happening is that investment bankers with reputations in Wall Street and the marketplace 
are backing that company by doing research on its prospects and essentially representing to the investing public that this looks like it's a legitimate, long-term, solid investment in which the original founders of the company are going to share some of their ownership by selling shares in the company to investors, large investors, small investors, institutional investors, individuals trading at home. It's that model that has been the bedrock of the investment world, the securities investment world, for decades in the United States, really since the early 20th century. What the small cap unscrupulous boiler room operators do is they take advantage of that expectation. So you'll have major Wall Street or international underwriting banks that are putting their name behind the company going public, which gives us a level of credibility that this is actually a pretty good investment. While you may not make a ton of money, you may not lose a ton of money. It's a solid company with solid prospects. So everything looks the same, except that the broker-dealers are working with investment banks that aren't really very experienced or aren't really looking out to determine through due diligence and other work that the underlying prospects of the company going public are solid. And so everything looks like it's the same as when you know a major bank on Wall Street underwrites the company going public and does roadshows and does other publicly facing discussions about the prospects of the company, except that they don't actually do that research and the company actually doesn't have the prospects or the business to merit going public. And so that's where they try to make it, you know, it's like a lot of crimes. It's a scam in the sense when it's being done improperly, where it looks like something legitimate. It looks like something that you'd want to do because it kind of reads and sounds and smells similar to say a major tech company goes public and people say, oh, I wish I'd bought shares in Facebook back when it was going public. Think how rich I'd be now. But the difference is that Facebook was a company with enormous prospects and enormous potential and major international underwriters and bankers who had looked into its prospects and fairly evaluated them. If it's a boiler room with a micro cap stock, it may not be the same, but it looks the same. That's what they're preying on. So you just brought, I think, an important point up, which is the broker dealer itself. You know, there are these centuries old, prominent Wall Street firms that have uh, really good reputations and very well-developed processes and controls around an initial public offering. And then there are those that maybe operate on the margins of, of the securities industry. What can individual investors do and what resources are out there for them to check on the reputation of an individual registered rep and the broker-dealer with which they are associated? Well, the happy news is that there are even more, this is true, and I could answer almost any question about information with the same answer. There's more information available to investors now than there ever has been. The traditional sources are still there and they're still reliable. Securities and Exchange Commission, NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange. There are many of the most increasingly, each of the state in the United States has a securities investor protection program or an attorney general's office that can provide information about scams. There are international sources that are similar. There's information about from various sources about people that are prey on investors. But there's also just all kinds of tools that are available on the internet where you can privately do your own investigating. If someone's bringing to your attention some investment opportunity, you can learn a lot about the individuals that are involved in that by just Googling. Now, you shouldn't rely totally on that because a good scamster can, can equally put up bogus information to make it look like they're legitimate when they're not. But you can do that. You can get uh, investigation reports run at a much cheaper price than you used to to understand 
is this really a bank? Is this really a broker dealer? They have a name that sounds like the name of a prominent Wall Street investment bank, but is it really? So there's a lot of lot out there that you can look to even more than ever. But it, as always, it requires diligence. It requires patience. Right. So, you know, you referred to some of the regulators. Take one, um, you know, very useful uh, piece of information is that you can check the disciplinary records of a registered representative to see if they have been, if they've ever been disciplined for misrepresenting or deceiving investors, if they've bounced around from one unknown broker dealer to the next, they've ever been suspended or prohibited from selling securities for a period of time. Those are, does that mean that they're going to do it again? Not necessarily, but it certainly, it gives you an indication about who you might be dealing with. So boiler room operators spread false or misleading information about a company's stock price. It used to be, as you mentioned, over the phone, and now it's through things like social media, investment research websites, email marketing, and other forms of advertising. What should investors interested in microcap investing be alert for to avoid falling victim to a pump and dump? Well, I'm going to suggest something that might be a little different than obviously looking to all the sources you just mentioned, Scott, and you know these well as anybody in the marketplace where investors can look. There's two ways in which you can do it. You can reach out externally to these sources and try to look for indicia of fraud or problems with the party that's bringing this opportunity to your attention. But there's another thing that I think as I've gotten older and more experienced, I would recommend, which is a good strategy. It's pretty good advice for a lot of things. I try to do it in my own life. Mixed success. First thing is when someone comes to you with some great opportunity, take a deep breath. Think about it. Slow down. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Take a little time to look into it. It's rare that investment opportunity that's worth anything has to be acted upon within a matter of minutes or hours. It just doesn't work that way. If it's worth something today, it's going to be worth something tomorrow. And so if you slow down, you do your research, and you look online, most of the scamsters in the microcap space in its current incarnation on the internet are still discernible or discoverable with a little bit of work. You can find it. And so just take a deep breath, slow down, and do the, all the things that you just mentioned that we just discussed. And you're probably going to be protecting yourself better than you can do anything else, as opposed to jumping, succumbing to the hype and thinking that you have to buy that stock right away. You know, you raise a really important point about, you know, fraudsters, one of the key things that they create when trying to defraud victims is this false sense of urgency. This this is a limited time opportunity. The stock's really going to move and you have to strike now. And I think that's really sage advice. The whole slow things down, even if there is this fear of missing out because you might be well served to miss out and if you know haven't had sufficient time to to validate these representations that people are making. So no, those are really good points. So Joel, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a Stratton Oakmont question or two. Uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned you this. You know, I worked on that matter too, but you and I didn't overlap. I had left the Bureau before before you became prosecutor of the case, but I worked with somebody that you worked with very closely, Greg Coleman, 
who is the FBI special agent and case agent for Stratton Oakmont. And, you know, obviously you were very involved as the lead prosecutor on the Stratton Oakmont matter and ultimately prosecuted Jordan Belfort for securities fraud. He wrote a best-selling book, of course, as people well know, which became a Martin Scorsese movie by the same name, Wolf of Wall Street. And you've yourself written about some of the significant differences between the movie and what really happened. Can you share a few of those? Happy to. And first, I absolutely remember you being involved in the case. And Greg Coleman gives credit to lots of people on the Bureau side who did great work. And you certainly were a name that I knew of, even though we did not get the chance to overlap on that case together because you had left for other opportunities. Yeah. So look, very briefly, and I have talked about this before, though it's been a while. You know, in most cases that, that we handle as lawyers or investigators that have some public awareness about them, if there's a movie made about them or a TV show or, or you could, you know, there's all kinds of, it's not just Wolf of Wall Street, billions and other kinds of things that people watch. Often talk to the lawyers or investigators who were involved in the actual real matter. They'll tell you, oh, what you see on TV, what you see in the movies, what you read in the book, it's overstated. It's exaggerated. That's not really the way it is. It's a lot more boring than that. Ironically, with the Wolf of Wall Street and Stratton Oakman and the boiler rooms that they were running, it's the opposite, believe it or not, because that was a pretty colorful movie and pretty colorful books. The real facts, the real things that they were doing, and I'm not talking about the, the illegal manipulation of marketplaces in the micro, micro stock, micro cap world, which they was accurate, but just the boss crazy behavior, the visits with prostitutes, the visits with all kinds of just, you know, blatantly illegal drug-infused parties, et cetera, it was understated in the movie only because if they accurately reflected what really happened, they wouldn't have gotten an R rating. It would have been an X-rated movie. You could not show what these guys were actually doing. They actually had to play some of it down. That doesn't mean that it was accurate in every respect, but it was actually in some ways toned down, believe it or not. Yeah, I, I do remember some of the outrageous stories just from getting involved in the case, and, and uh, but you're right, and they told it all, it, would have, it wouldn't have been suitable for many audiences. So you and I are both involved in investigations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and it's hard not to be fascinated by one case in particular, the, the one MDB case, which in and of itself would make a great movie. It toppled the Prime Minister of Malaysia. His wife had a $350 million collection of pink diamonds. The case itself was orchestrated by a, a multi-million dollar fugitive. And of course, you know, there was a recent settlement in which Goldman Sachs paid $3.3 billion to settle the case involving their role in 1MDB. Of the many amazing facts in this case, and I, I have followed it pretty closely, was that some of the money stolen from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund was used to finance the making of the Wolf of Wall Street movie and to gift its star, Leonardo DiCaprio, I think it was Marlon Brando's Best Actor Academy Award. There's a certain symmetry, I think, to Jordan Belfort's story being told and made into a movie with dirty money. Any final thoughts on what I just shared? And it's you know the one MDB case and its nexus to the making of the Wolf of Wall Street. Sure. I'll just start by saying I'm not going to speak at all about 1MDB because of a client obligations not to talk about that case. But I think I can say publicly, because it's certainly well known, 
you said the symmetry or, or the cosmic uh, full circle nature of that Jordan Belfort film, it's not his film, Scorsese's film, and the screenplay written by Terrence Winter would never have been made into a movie. For years, they were shopping it around, apparently. I was not involved in making the movie. I refused to be involved. I was not interviewed. I had no involvement, but I know this from you know, the media, media coverage, and others that have covered the story, they couldn't get it funded. And Scorsese was interested, DiCaprio was interested, but they couldn't get it funded. And it is ironic, supremely ironic, because the funding ultimately apparently came from the source of another alleged fraud. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and this is another you know, perfect example of that. No, it really, it really is. I remember when that came to light, I was just found it, it was just, I don't know, amusing. Um, so that's all the time we have today. Joel, this has been great. I really appreciate the way you've explained, you know, pump and dump schemes and shared your, your experience and really appreciate your time today, Joel. Scott, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and it's a pleasure to be on your great podcast. So good luck. Thanks. So that was Gibson Dunn litigation partner, white collar defense and investigations co-chair, Joel Cohen. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eats Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eats Strategy when we'll hear from Murphy and McGonagall partner, Bob Appleton, who will answer the question, is corruption a part of the United Nations DNA? If you have an idea on a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.